By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. Welcome to Moody's Talks, KYC Decoded. I'm your host, Alex Pillow, and this episode is presented by Moody's Analytics. A quick disclaimer. By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing that the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies, views or positions of Moody's Corporation and its affiliates. Ideas are cheap. Ideas are easy. Ideas are common. Everybody has ideas. Ideas are highly, highly overvalued. Execution is everything. I think variations of this have been said by many, but these particular words are credited to Casey Neistat. I'll admit, as an air quotes ideas guy, they're slightly worrying. But having spent a podcast exploring the idea of petrol KYC and another talking about the tech behind it, we wanted to spend some time today looking at what actually goes into doing it with a real life practitioner. In that regard, we're very lucky today to be joined by Head of Financial Crime Project Delivery at Fintrail, Jess Caff. So we're joined by Jess Caff from Fintrail. Very grateful for the time. I know you're always juggling multiple projects. Always got time for this. Always got time for you. It's, it's really good to be speaking to you today. Yeah, great to grab an hour of your time. The, the reason I specifically wanted to spend some time with you from the Fintrail team, who's got a lot of practitioners within Fintrail, right? With some great experience, but I know that some of your previous career, you've actually run some big refresh cycles and remediations and things that can be the bane of the KYC professional's existence sometimes, or at least sort of a stressful amount of work to get through. And these are some of the things that the idea of perpetual KYC sort of, you know, the promise is it could eliminate those or at least reduce them. Mm-hmm. But I know there are people that disagree with that. So simply put, I wondered if you think perpetual KYC is necessary or is this just marketing hype? And actually those projects that you've done in the past are always going to be here. I mean, what a question to start off with for starters. Um, So yes, I have definitely been involved in a lot of very long, very difficult and very expensive remediation exercises. And it literally can be the bane of an institution's life for one, two, three, maybe even four years. If you've got to remediate a whole client book, it can be very difficult, very long, very, very arduous. Um, And perpetual KYC is kind of a new, sexy, fun term that everyone is trying to get involved with. Um, And they kind of see it it as a, a silver bullet. This will solve all my problems and I'll never have to remediate my files ever again. And I'm sure we'll get into it in this call today in a bit more detail. And it's definitely a good direction to be heading in. And it's very exciting. But there are some things that it, 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 unless you do it correctly, it won't necessarily solve immediately. And there's lots of challenges that you have to think about before that's ever going to work as well and as smoothly as it should do. Um, I mean, so at a simple level, I'm sure we've, we've covered this previously, but perpetual KYC is basically just continuous KYC or event-driven dynamic KYC. So instead of doing periodic refreshes of your customer book, you would do this on an event-driven basis. So every time a, a risk profile change happens for each of your customer base, then you would be triggered on a dynamic basis to refresh 
the KYC for that individual. Now, that's very different to the periodic refresh where you have to go in on a either one, two, three or one, three, five year basis based on the risk profile of, of the customer. Um, so it's very, very different. It's dynamic. It has loads of exciting things that you can open up with perpetual KYC. And on the back of that, you hopefully would not end up with any backlogs that you'd have to go in and remediate. So that's the whole point here, right? You don't create backlogs. You don't have to go in and remediate them. And I'm sure we'll get into it more today, but there are loads of pros and cons. It's a very exciting new concept that has a lot of good opportunities, but there are loads of challenges that you've got to think about before you're going to get there. And it's not going to be a silver bullet immediately. Well, let's just jump off there. Let's talk about these things. You, you've got to think about, you know, and don't necessarily have to give me everything on the spot, but what are some of the things that you would advise a listener to think about immediately? So there's lots of things that you have to think about before you can get to a a perpetual KYC process that actually works. And I think if if you are in a situation where you're currently dealing with long remediation exercises, your KYC process is probably going to be quite heavily manual or based on lots of different systems. So your data will be spread across in lots of different places. And it's probably not going to be very effective at this stage. You might not have a good case management tool. Your customer risk assessment might not be very good. You might not have very good event-driven triggers at all at this stage. So if you think you're, you're, you're dealing with this kind of semi-manual challenging situation at the moment, and that's why you're, you're falling into a remediation situation, and then you want to jump into straight away into a dynamic KYC, perpetual KYC model, you just can't do that. There are many different things that you're going to have to think about. You're going to have to get your data into some kind of right situation, clean your data. What's your IT infrastructure like? What are your tool sets like? Have you got the tools to be able to do this? Have you got good trigger mechanisms or good event-driven triggers to actually start to build a perpetual model? Have you got the right tools? So do you need to look at new vendors? Do you need to completely modernize all of your systems? And also things like, is your business ready for this culturally? So are your compliance teams or your financial crime teams, you know, completely kind of built into this? Are they ready to take this on? Because historically, we've been taking this kind of periodic approach for so long. Are they ready for this dynamic risk-based approach? So there are lots of challenges to start to think about before you get to a really effective perpetual model. That's only a few of them, I think. Yeah. And, and what's really interesting is Mark and I spent the, the earlier part of the day speaking with people from the, the vendor side. Mm-hmm. So someone from the Passport side and, and who's now part of Moody's, some from the Quantexa who work a lot in the entity resolution space. And, and looking at those triggers and a lot of the time that the networks, well, a lot of what you've just said overlaps quite nicely with what they said. So, so that's good. There is actually alignment mm-hmm. and they, the vendors, are thinking like a practitioner which is their job, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's to try and really think from the customer perspective. I think that's very encouraging, that at least from the episode we, that we just did is on point. And one of the things we always talk about is the risk-based approach, which every person listening to this, I'm, I'm sure is familiar with. How would you apply that with a perpetual KYC model? Because part of that, as you, as you say, is looking for triggers that might change the risk rating. But how do you know which triggers to apply to which customers? Mm-hmm. And from your perspective, if 
you were building this today for a customer or hypothetically for a business, if, if you were in-house or you were running the business, how would you think about it? That's a, yeah, that's, I mean, it's a great question. Uh, and everyone is thinking, we, we deploy a risk-based approach already. Why do we need to think about this? We're, we're doing what the regulator says. Um, and I'm, I'm sure everyone is, of course. Uh, but I think if, if we think about the risk-based approach here, it's probably if we step back a little bit and just remember what we're trying to achieve. So what are we trying to achieve with our risk-based approach in KYC? Well, ultimately, we're trying to stop financial crime. We're trying to spot suspicion and stop financial crime by looking for those instances that might be crime or might be criminal acts, passing this on to law enforcement, who then go and stop crime from happening. So we look at this from a KYC perspective. We're trying to identify anything suspicious at onboarding. So is it identity fraud or are there sanctions hits or whatever there up front? But we're also trying to really understand who our customer is so that we can then look for anything suspicious when they then sort of start to sort of um, engage with our product. So throughout the course of the relationship, we need to know who they are up front so that we can spot anything that's odd or weird throughout the course of the relationship. So I think if we look at the risk-based approach here, that's ultimately what we're trying to achieve. So we really need to understand who our customer really is through doing all of this KYC, because that will then drive our risk-based approach. So at the start, if we identify any customer that is particularly high, high risk, uh, so we don't just de-risk them, because that's also a ter- not a good thing, and the regulator is also looking at the, the downsides of just de-risking anyone that's high risk, We should be able to engage with higher risk customers, but we need to deploy more controls to be able to monitor that customer for anything suspicious throughout the course of the relationship. So if you go into a perpetual KYC model, this should be more closely aligned with an effective risk-based approach where you're starting to pull out certain triggers for certain customers that are higher risk versus certain customers that are lower risk. And being able to dynamically deploy your kind of re-KYC refreshes when you spot those instances of suspicion. So when you've got high-risk customers doing certain things, that triggers a KYC refresh or some sort of different control. Maybe you're re-screening them or doing some adverse media screening or something at that point. Whereas the lower-risk ones, they might have slightly different thresholds. So it makes sure that you can deploy your resources to your higher risk customers so that you're more likely to get to our end goal here, which is ultimately looking for suspicious activity and trying to spot any crime, because that's the ultimate goal. I think sometimes when we talk about the risk-based approach, we're talking about it just as a tick box exercise for the regulator, because that's what they expect. But ultimately, let's try and remember what we're trying to achieve here, which is stopping financial crime. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, particularly with that point. I think what came up earlier in this series around perpetual KYC is you don't necessarily have to get 100% of your third parties, your customers on that model straight away. It might be that we take these high risk ones from your current, you know, your current risk rating system, you know, put them on this model just so you can figure out how to do it and, and what you're doing and do that perpetually. Um, and then once you've got that chunk firing, you can then figure out how to get, you know, the next level and the next level and, and you can decide where to draw the line. I don't know if this is an intelligent question. So you tell me, are there any inputs that might go into this that you think are most important 
anything that you would note? Is it certain types of transactions? Is it sanctions? Yeah, that's an obvious one. But is there anything else where you would go, these ones need to be perpetually monitored? Mm -hmm. There are others that might be optional, but I don't know. Three to five, you, you call out to someone that's right at the starting point of trying to figure out what will go into their model. Mm-hmm. Just to actually flip back very quickly to your last comment, I totally, totally agree. You've, you've mentioned there taking a risk-based approach even to deployment of perpetual KYC, which is perfect because I would never, ever suggest jumping straight into the perpetual KYC of your entire client book. So that's a beautiful way of doing it where you take your higher risk first, get that all right, and then start to um, integrate this for your medium to your low, lower risk customers. So yeah, absolutely love that. That's a great point. A broken clock like me is still right twice a day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the second point around, what are the data points that we need to start looking at and start pulling in here? And I think there is there are a couple of things that you definitely need to be pulling in. You've mentioned a couple there. So if your customer, for example, is suddenly a sanctioned person, definitely that is something that needs to immediately flag and be dealt with because sanctions fines are just something we don't even need to talk about. They are they can be absolutely huge. And the situation with the sanctions regimes at the moment is very complicated. So definitely need to keep keep on top of that. But also things like for your high risk customers, if you're deploying adverse media checks continuously, looking for anything to do with um, adverse media that comes up, looking for certain different transactional patterns, for example. But it's very difficult to pull out the specifics because this will all depend on the product that you've got. So it really depends on what type of product you're offering and what type of risks your customer base has. So if you're dealing with a load of corporate customers, that's going to be very different to some of the data points that you might be dealing with for um, private individual customer customers. And if your product is kind of some kind of prepaid card, it's going to be very different to somebody that's got a, a loan agreement or somebody that's doing investments. So it really depends on your product because that will define sort of the transactional patterns that you're picking up, uh, the type of customer data points that you want to be looking at. So whilst there are a couple that you need to, you definitely have to be looking at, it really depends on what your, your product is. So I definitely recommend making sure that your own business-wide financial crime risk assessment is up to scratch. So you've had a look and you properly understand what are the specific risks related to your customer base, and what are the specific risks related to your own product? Because that enables you to really spot the real real challenges here. Because something that's good for one company might be totally wrong for another. And all the thresholds will be completely different as well. It's amazing how much overlap there is. So I'm encouraged by our previous guests sort of obviously knowing that stuff. Um, what you're talking to there is really the mindset going right across your process. And I, I talked a lot about this isn't some piece of technology plug and play. Technology is a huge enabler, but you've got to have the mindset. And as you said, that, that goes back to the risk assessment, the policy process and the design of it before you actually plug some tools in and start to chip away at, at whether you do the high risk first or you know you just worry about a few inputs being perpetually monitored first. I'm sure there are other ways to do it. We have a little section here that we that we let's call audience asks where I've gone to people that I, I know listens to the podcast. They've let me know a few questions they would have for you. I don't actually tell them the name of the guest, but uh, I tell them roughly what the role is. So questions for a practitioner is sort of how I frame this. First one that came through, which I, I thought was an interesting phrasing 
was, is perpetual KYC an evolution or a revolution for the anti-financial crime industry? What's, what's your view on that? Gosh, good one. Um, I think that it is actually quite revolutionary uh, because if we look back at how long we've had this periodic approach, I mean, in part, it is slightly evolutionary because we have over the last five, 10 years been shifting from the rules-based approach to the risk-based approach that we've talked about for, for a while in this, this, this session. So we have been making that transitional evolutionary change, but this is quite revolutionary because it's really driven by some of the new tools and the opportunities that we've got. Uh, because even if you take a risk-based approach, you can still deploy that kind of general periodic view. But here, this is really driven by tools because if you can't effectively spot risks when they come up, and there are lots of tools that really enable you to do this really, really effectively, quite amazingly now to spot some real uh, interesting risks as they come up. But we didn't quite have the tool sets ready to go for that. So I think in that sense, it's quite revolutionary because it's really being driven by the opportunities given to us by the technology. But then on the flip side, just to note that there is no single, I don't believe yet, there's no single perfect tool that does everything that you would need end to end to implement perpetual KYC. Uh, and maybe we can come on to that later, but so that there is no single tool, but actually being able to do this effectively is being driven by some of the tools that we do have access to. Yeah, let, let's try to come back to that later. I think there's a lot of people working on it, but probably is a, it's a combination right now if you're going to get close. Next question uh, from, from these audience members. So let me just read this verbatim. Uh, some regulators have said perpetual KYC is as well as rather than instead of periodic review. Does that make sense? Yes, I actually think in the current environment, it does make sense. Quite controversially, I think it, it does. And the reason for that is, well, probably one of it is there's no single tool that you could just implement and suddenly you have magical, perfect perpetual KYC. So to me, you're going to have to implement this in a phased approach. I actually don't know anyone that's implementing perpetual KYC perfectly at all at the moment. So I think in the current environment, when nobody has this right, it's probably a sensible idea to be implementing this alongside some of the traditional periodic review processes. Now, come back in two, three, five years time, hopefully a lot of people will be in an environment where perpetual KYC is more than enough and better than the existing periodic review models. I mean, I think we could, we'll probably come on to some of the um, positives of perpetual KYC later in the session, but there are so many good things. And the fundamental benefit here is that you will spot risks in near real time versus periodic KYC, where you will only spot them if the customer tells you there's a, a change or you come, up, come to review the profile in one, three, five years time. Yeah, once the horse is bolted, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So in that sense, you could be left open for a number of years mm. to those risks, which leaves you open to potentially missing some of your regulatory requirements for that period of time. Yeah, follow up to that from myself rather than the audience is, so it's often said about people that are buyers in this space, this, this KYC and compliance and financial, uh, you know, anti-financial crime space, 
you've naturally got quite a risk averse population that there's a reason they've ended up sort of selecting this career or, or falling into it and finding themselves good at it because they have a natural tendency to be a little bit more, say, conservative than, you know, someone who falls into marketing and does really well because they're a bit more of a risk taker. So if everyone waits for the, you know, the two years and hopes someone else figures this out, is there a danger that no one will ever get on top of this and will sort of be stuck with periodic review because everyone's waiting and waiting and therefore everyone is still still on that one three five or one two three year cycle? Yeah, that's an interesting thought. And you're absolutely right that people in this industry are super, super risk averse. I mean, that's also why my personal personal investments are terrible because I have so I'm so averse to risk <laughs> that I'm probably investing like an 80-year-old with no risk. Um, so yeah. That is a challenge, but it comes back to the original point I made around making sure that culturally your compliance and financial crime teams are ready to take on something like perpetual KYC. The positive is at lots of financial crime and compliance conferences, you are always hearing about this. So all of your risk averse friends of the industry are already talking about this and engaging with it. And we fundamentally believe in the risk-based approach. And we can see the benefits here. So I don't think that it's going to be a challenge for most financial crime and compliance professionals. I think the challenge is probably more going to lie in the costs associated to the tools and the data cleansing that you're going to have to do to implement that, which is probably going to come more from your finance team and not from the risk averse nature of your compliance and financial crime team. Okay. And, and this leads really nicely into the final audience ask. And they said, what are the biggest barriers to transition to perpetual KYC? And they've listed, I think, five or six here. So rather than make you talk about each one, I think you may have touched on them at different points, but maybe you could just sort of stack rank these, please. I'll, I'll, I'll have a go. Um, I won't hold you to this. They've said tech, data, process, people, regulation, and cost. And I wonder if you have an intuitive order that, that jumps out to you. Is there one or two of those that you definitely put at the top and a couple that you say actually are eminently solvable? You know, you, you've just got to put the work in. So I think tech, data, and cost are at the top. Tech, data, and cost are definitely at the top. Uh, getting your data in order, making sure that your technical infrastructure is correct um, and your cost is going to be the biggest issues. People, I think, will be the easiest, and I go back goes back to the conversation we've been having on culture. And then regulation, I think that the regulators are definitely moving in this direction, and you can see quite positive things from the FCA coming out about moving in this direction. So I don't necessarily see that as an issue. Yeah, and, and is that reflected, not just in the UK, you mentioned the FCA, but are you seeing, seeing that in some of your global clients? Yeah, absolutely. We are definitely seeing it in lots of other, uh, particularly in European jurisdictions. So uh, yes, I think it's uh, it's positive. I mean, obviously, some of the regulators are slightly behind, and the FCA is quite uh, forward thinking in some of its tech sprints, for example. But other regulators are looking at some of the things that the FCA is doing and trying to take some inspiration. I mean, obviously, the FCA is not perfect, but it is positive to see the focus on technology and innovation and the positives that it can bring. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to, um, I want to segue and you sort of did it naturally for me beforehand around sort of talking about the cost, but, but also, you know, let's talk about the benefits. So if you think about 
what was the incentive to bring in perpetual KYC? I see that there's a natural one. You, you said earlier around let's let's spot more risks in near real time. Let's be more effective. Mo- most practitioners are motivated by by or, or in fact, I don't know any that aren't motivated motivated to stop bad guys. You know, do their role, do their bit. That there are there are other ways to make money that are arguably less stressful uh, than this particular space. So. So I I believe most people in it or almost all people are in it for the right reasons. But when you're talking about that finance department, the CEO, the budget holder, the COO, perhaps, um, let's just say the budget holder, and we talk about the incentives to bring in perpetual KYC, how can a practitioner make that argument? Are Are there ways that you would look to justify that? Definitely. Uh, so obviously, the financial crime risk benefits are the easy ones, right, that we've, we've covered, I think, so far. But if you're looking at your budget holders, I would split this into two. One, your kind of operational cost type benefits. And then two, your improvements to customer experience and therefore revenue generating benefits, right? Um, so if you look at the operational cost savings side, if you don't do periodic reviews and you don't end up with lots of backlogs, you're probably not going to have to pay for lots of expensive resources to come in and do big remediation exercises. You don't have accumulated back books. You don't have large sets of data that needs to be all remediated at once. Uh, lots of hundreds of analysts coming in to manually review it. Um, that's expensive. That is expensive. And reducing that cost is extremely positive. And if you have more automation, more straight through processing, you can really make the whole process a lot more effective and efficient. So operationally, you can reduce some of your costs. And then on the flip side, if you improve customer experience, there's always the potential for winning more customers, right? So I think from this perspective, if you don't have the periodic refresh where you're manually going out, you're contacting your customer, has anything changed on your profile? Uh, can you update this and that? Which is obviously a little bit annoying, although lots of uh, new fintech banks and fintech apps have got really good ways of doing that. Those touch points can be a little bit frustrating. And say if you are trying to uh, do a periodic refresh for a corporate client, that can be a really long process for them to update lots of different parts of their uh, profile. So if you improve the customer experience by reducing the touch points to the customer on a periodic basis and only going out if something really does change, and if you only have to go out to them to ask about that specific change, that's a much better customer experience. So I think if you're speaking to your budget holders, break it down to operational cost saving and improve customer experience. Those are the two I'd break it down to. Yeah, that, that's interesting. You know, that, that other part is the, the customer experience. That's, that's a really good argument. Um, I think I've heard that this, this might be because and I, you know, I've always been in the various go-to-market functions. So it's actually a sales and marketing use case, particularly if you think around, you know, the the small to medium business and the people that often own those are, are entrepreneurial. So obviously they then may set up another business. And if you've perpetually monitoring the directors, you know, that the shareholders of businesses, when they set up the next one or another one or, or do something that's different, if you wait four or five years because they're low risk, you didn't alert your relationship manager to that person or, or your marketing team for automated means to go and speak to them about it. You might have missed an opportunity. They they might not necessarily, whatever service you provide, tech, 
financial services or professional services, you know, lawyers, accountants, et cetera, you may have missed something there that could have led to some opportunities. It's, it's not even just new customers from the onboarding experience. It can also be additional sales to your existing customers because you're showing that you're, you're proactive. You're showing that you're aware of what's changed in their world. And you said earlier that, you know, good data, good tech, looking at the networks, understanding the context. So yeah, that, that's another one that you can maybe put in customer service or you could, could maybe break out. As you know, that there are additional sales to be made to, to existing customers. Absolutely. Absolutely. Any opportunities to say, absolutely, if they move to a different market or something like that. I mean, I've got my financial crime head off, so I'm thinking, what if they move to a high risk market that we must monitor them more? But um, absolutely, if they move to a new market or they open another uh, entity and they, they perhaps are better suited to another one of your products or there's a new opportunity there, there's so much that you've got here to be able to work on if you can spot things, you know right when they happen live, there's so much opportunity. It starts to become a bigger conversation, doesn't it? This, this might start with the head of compliance or MLRO or BSA officer, head of compliance ops, you know, whatever the title is, that, that someone is, is looking at this, but it starts to become a, you know, a CXO or, or board level discussion and you want the marketing people involved and you want the chief revenue officer involved. Obviously, it can be scary to do that because the project becomes bigger and more stakeholders and you know, but the, the payoff can suddenly become much bigger and much more worth it and you can get some allies. And so suddenly, you know, I, I hopefully rather than people looking at compliance as a business blocker, you know, that stereotype, they start to go, oh, wow, th- these guys are showing us the path to, to more revenue and better business. At Moody's, we talk about responsible business because, you know, that's kind of the aim. And as you said, you don't want to de-risk everything because people will just find a way. Uh, you know, you've got to have them in your gravitational pull to affect them. And you can encourage responsible business by how you decide to design products and go to market, et cetera. I think we've kind of covered this. I was going to ask you about pitfalls, but you've talked a lot around, you know, jumping in with both feet and not really having a plan, I guess some might say. Is there anything else you'd call out that you haven't already mentioned around pitfalls that people should try to avoid? Gosh, um, I think we've covered a lot. So making sure the data is clean, looking at your IT infrastructure, et cetera. Um, but I think probably it's worth just mentioning that when you do start down this journey, you start to consider interacting with vendors. There are a lot of things that you're going to have to really think about to make sure that that relationship with vendors is right. And you do pick and select the right vendor because quite often if you get into a contract with wrong vendor, you're stuck with them for a year or a number of years until that contract ends. So I think it's just making sure that when you do start down this journey, you explore lots of different vendors. Now, not too many because there are thousands of amazing reg techs out there. But making sure that you really understand exactly what part of the perpetual KYC model you are looking to cover with that specific vendor so like I said before, at the moment, I don't think there's any single vendor that covers the whole process, including case management, uh, dynamic risk ratings, transaction monitoring, um, you know, screening, etc. So you're going to have to create at the moment your perpetual KYC model by pulling information from lots of different places, from lots of different vendors and your own internal systems. So it is going to be a bit of a patchwork when you first get into this. But there are, as we've talked about, so many opportunities when you do, but just making sure that when you go down this road, you're really clear about what you want to get from your vendor, because otherwise 
when you're going down a sort of request for proposal process and RFP process, that can be very, very complicated and start to get a little bit out of control unless you know exactly what you're looking for. Especially as you just said, that you might be engaging with a lot of people across the business who want to, to get a lot from this vendor. So if you've got people coming across from your marketing team, your financial crime team, your tech team, and it's right to have them involved if needed, you do need to make sure that your requirements are really thought through and you've got a clear RFP process and assessment process so that that doesn't become overwhelming and you end up with vendors that just don't work together. Um, and then actually it's, it's probably worse than it is better. And then we can see why the regulator is telling you that you actually need to take a phased approach to this um, and don't just jump in it, but first. So I think just making sure that your vendors are really clear. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, as someone who's in the past, because you still contribute to you know, RFPs, there's nothing worse than a badly written one because, you know, it's a waste of the customer's time. You know it. It's a waste of your time. You know it. Um, you still do it because you don't want a competitor to get, get in there before you and, or get there instead of you. So you still do it because you don't want a competitor to get there who told them what to do, even though you know, they all have their own questions. I, I think it's, it's really good advice to, to really get that bit right. I'm sure that people, I'm sure there are people that can help with that. As always, try to, try to wrap these things up with some sort of uh, recommended resources from guests for, for our listeners. So I don't know, Jess, if there's anything that you guys at Fintrail have put out or something you've read elsewhere in the market or events that you're going to or have been to where you feel there's, there's good content around this that can help people you know, go to get through another layer or, or go another layer or two deeper, ultimately so they can start to think about which bit would they target and how would they phase perpetual KYC in for their business? Because obviously it would be different for different people. Yeah, absolutely. Um... I think to start with, we do have our Fintrail Insights division that puts out absolutely incredible blog posts and white paper content on lots of different topics, including KYC. But also, I'd like to give a shout out to regtech providers and vendors themselves, because there's actually a lot of good material about perpetual KYC that's coming out from vendors as well. So definitely check out lots of things there. And then every fintech conference you will see, there will always be a panel on perpetual KYC at the moment. So there's loads of different conferences that are definitely covering this. And there are also lots and lots of interesting webinars that anyone can join for free that also cover this. So there's lots of interesting stuff. And I think Fintrail may be coming up with an article or two on this in future. So keep an eye out. I'm sure Insights will be definitely doing something on this soon. Well, by the time we get all of this edited up and ready to release with the, the rest of the series, I'm sure some of this will be be out. So maybe if you can send some links in the meantime, we'll We'll make sure that that's all linked to in the show notes uh, for listeners to go and, and check out. So yeah, with, with that, Jess, I'll just say thank you so much for your time, your, your expertise and, and sharing it so eloquently. And yeah, you're very welcome back anytime. No problem at all. Lovely to speak to you. Thank you very much. Excited, but pragmatic. I think that's how I'd sum up the insight Jess has given us there. Yes, perpetual KYC is the direction regulators, practitioners and vendors are moving in. But much like our risk-based policies, the execution of these needs to be proportionate, phased and likely iterative as we begin to move away from periodic refresh over time rather than all at once. It was really interesting to hear the overlap between Chor, Delphine, Henry, Alex and Jess, particularly around the mindset, attitude and change management required to take the concept of perpetual KYC forward. 
Crucially though, all guests pointed to the huge incentive of not just stopping more bad actors, but also of changing the perception and role of KYC and compliance within business. A world where KYC is seen as a positive for all parts of an enterprise rather than the point of friction is a vision we, as stakeholders in the sector, can all get behind. A huge thanks again to Jess, as well as to listeners for spending some time with us today. Please check out the resources in the show notes, check out earlier episodes for more insight, and let us know if there's a topic you'd like us to cover. And finally, thank you to Mark Rundle and Caroline Waters for all their efforts in producing this podcast. Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts.